0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Boise, Idaho, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Boise, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Boise. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good evening and welcome, everyone. I am James Orr, and tonight's presentation is Burr Real Estate Investing Strategy. And Burr stands for Buy, Rehab, Rent, Refinance, and Repeat. I always got to stop and think about that. So I'm going to jump right into the presentation. Uh, so this is part of a series that we're doing where we're digging into all of the different real estate investing strategies. So far, we've done the buy and hold real estate investing strategy, where we talked about buying whole property short-term and vacation rentals. Then the next class, we did a whole series on the nomad strategy. Nomad strategy is buying a property, moving in as an owner-occupant, living there for a year, and then converting that property to a rental after living there for a year, sometimes a little bit more. But we do that because you can buy properties with little or nothing down, and you get a much better interest rate when you buy a property as an owner-occupant. So that one is the Nomad Strategy. We covered an entire class on that and all the variations, including Nomad by Proxy, Nomad with House Hacking, Nomad to Short-Term Rental or Vacation Rental, Nomad with Lease Option Exit, and the Ultimate Real Estate Agent Retirement Plan. And so all of those are covered in Nomad. I'll reference some numbers tonight for that, but if you want to go watch the whole video on that, you should go watch that whole Nomad series. Then we did another class on the House Hacking Real Estate Investing Strategy. House hacking is where when you're living in a property, you're getting income from the property you're living in. The most common example is buying a duplex or a triplex or a fourplex uh, where you live in one of the units and then you rent out the other sides uh, to be able to do that or up and down depending on how it's structured. And so house hacking is all about different ways to make money on a property that you are currently living in. And those what I would consider to be our primary strategies on this whole series that we're doing. Uh, those are the ones that the majority of the classes we teach are going to be on. Uh, the mo- majority of what's going to be on the podcast. But then, in order to be a completionist, I added a whole bunch of secondary strategies. Uh, tonight is one of the examples of that. So tonight we're going to cover the burst strategy: buy, rehab, rent, refinance, and repeat. That's what burst stands for, and we'll talk about the how burst works with all the components of that are and then we're going to do a class on quick turning flipping properties we'll do a class on creative financing all the different owner financing subject to rent to own lease option lease purchase and the ultimate strategy we'll cover all those in there do a class on wholesaling and wholesaling. do a class on options and option auction and then tax liens and tax deeds and then the kind of round out the secondary strategies we'll do a whole class on partnerships and syndications which will include uh, the three different roles as a partner deal maker or syndicator, the money partner and the loan partner. And so those are kind of like bonus sessions. So it's considered kind of like a bonus session where we talk about those and compare them. And then a couple of things that I'm just not gonna uh, recover um, in any of the classes. Uh, I'm not gonna do a class on real estate investment trusts. You can go ahead and you know talk to your stockbroker about buying real estate investment trusts. And some topics that people often ask me about that I'm like, hey, James, why aren't you covering, you know, probate or short sales or foreclosures or pre-foreclosures? It's because they sort of are already included in the other strategies as we go through them. They're not like their own unique strategy. They're like ways to find deals in many cases. So that's why we're not going to cover those separately. But those are the classes we have. Each one of these will have its own separate you know, structured class like we've been doing here. So if you want to go back and watch those, you can um, and reference them as needed. Okay, so what is BRRRR? Um, Most people uh, are doing the BRRRR strategy as buying a property, usually at a, a very significant discount so that they can rehab the property with the ideal of being able to completely eliminate their down payment. So in an ideal world, you buy a property at such a big discount that you can go in there, do the rehab on the property, get it all fixed up, have another appraisal done, refinance the property such that you leave $0 in the deal. So you've acquired a property with absolutely nothing down and you have 20% of equity when you acquire the property. That's like the goal, the the like ideal uh, kind of like the perfect scenario that that happens. Now, in reality, it rarely happens that way where you're able to get a deal where you have completely eliminated your down payment. It's much more likely for you to leave, you know, one, two, three, four, five, maybe 10% of the price of the property in the deal when you do that. So when you do your your refinance, you're usually going to leave a little bit of money in the deal, unless you happen to find an exceptional deal or, you know, the market changes and you're able to find these types of deals where you're able to do that. So That's what the BRRRR strategy is about. Um, So when you typically buy the BRRRR properties, you have to be buying for significantly below the after-repaired value, which we often call ARV, after-repaired value. So to be able to buy a property, you do that. Often you're needing to buy in that 70% to 75% of the after-repaired value range with major rehabs. It may even be lower. So if you need to, if you buy a property that needs even more work, a lot of times you'll need to get an even bigger discount than that 70 to 75% because realize that you're going to have you know, all of your acquisition costs going in to buy the property on the first time. You're going to have holding costs while you're doing the rehab. You have your rehab costs, and then you've got your secondary, uh, you know, refinance costs of getting the secondary loan on that. Um, So there's quite a bit of expense in getting the deal done. Um, And a lot of times the loans in order to do the first part of the property, you know, when you do your first acquisition, it's usually some type of hard money loan. In a lot of cases, not all the time. And those tend to be a little bit more expensive loans to begin with. So in order to buy these properties, you need to be able to get uh, very significant discounts on them. There are two flavors of burr uh, that I kind of like to think about, um, and, and just so you know where I'm coming from, burr used to be my primary strategy. So a long time ago, when I first started getting involved in real estate investing, this was the strategy I went to first, um, and I used the strategy for a long time until I switched to um, other strategies. But primarily, buy and hold, and a little bit of nomading uh, is primarily what I've been focused on lately. So the two flavors of burr, though, cash purchase and then refinance. So a lot of times you'll go in there with all cash, you'll buy the property. Sometimes it's your own cash, sometimes it's a partner's cash, sometimes you know you're borrowing money against another property you own. So it's a it's a quasi-form of cash, but you're buying the property for cash. And then eventually, once you're done with all the rehab, you're refinancing the property, pulling all your cash back out. Uh, another flavor of Burr is where you finance the purchase to begin with, and then you do a refinance in order to get your, your original loan paid off and you leave very little money in the deal at that point. And remember for number two, the one where we do the finance purchase, you'll be, you'll be financing the property twice. So remember to count for two closing costs and two financing costs, uh, in order to get that loan. So you'll have to do the holding costs while you're rehabbing it, which is often a little bit more expensive. And then you'll do the, uh, financing and closing costs on that second kind of permanent loan that you're going to do for, you know, in a lot of cases, 30-year fixed rate financing in order to have that property long-term as a rental. All right. So I'm going to use the same format we've been using for some of the previous classes where we talked about, you know, all the different characteristics or way to kind of inspect a real estate investing strategy. And you'll notice me talking about some things and you're like, but James, what about you know, this really unusual example where I do this thing and I do this thing and and it works out this way. Sure. There's lots of exceptions to what I'm saying. So I've tried to categorize all the different real estate investing strategies, but I'm sure I miss some, you know, kind of like less common or less frequently used, which may be the most common thing for you, right? That's the hard thing for me is that you may say, well, I always do it this way. And so for you, it seems super, super common, but You know, having seen these for a long time and done a bunch myself, this is what I think is the most common. And, of course, there may be exceptions to that. Uh, I, I think of all the different strategies, Burr may be one of those ones where this is especially true. Where there are so many different exceptions to burr, there's so many different ways to kind of break this out and slice it up and make it happen that you're you're bound to find find a lot of different exceptions with burr more so than I think in a lot of the other strategies where I tend to cover a lot more comprehensively what's going on. And remember, this is not one of our primary strategies. This is one of our secondary strategies that we're sort of covering just to be completionists. But this isn't really our primary strategy. It's not our primary teaching mechanism uh, for these uh, episodes for uh, the uh, podcast. And recordings. Okay, so another warning, just because you don't think there's a chance that X can happen doesn't mean it won't happen. Uh, this is designed to be a starting point discussion to help you make better investing decisions on your own with additional knowledge. So please do your own research. Don't rely solely on me to get all this done. Okay, so Burr variations. So there are some different ways to do Burr. And I I primarily did single family homes for doing our modeling here, but you could have just as easily said, you know, I'm going to do Burr and I'm going to find only duplexes or I'm going to find only triplexes or only fourplexes or apartments, or I'm going to do single family homes or condos or townhomes or whatever you're going to do. So there's lots of different ways to kind of approach this from a different property type perspective. And then the other thing is you could purchase properties locally. And if you notice, like we talk about nomad or house hacking, we're always talking about local properties because the nomad strategy, you have to move in, you have to be an owner occupant. So unless you're doing like a vacation home and doing partial time there. We're always talking about your local market. The same thing with house hacking, house hacking by definition is you're making money on a property that you're living in. Now you're buying a duplex, triplex or fourplex that you're moving into and, and living there, or you're renting out a part of a you know single family home. Like you're getting roommates as another example of the uh, house hacking strategy. So. It's all about your local market when we're talking about nomad and house hacking. And I think for a lot of folks, buy and hold is mostly about their local market, although you could make the same argument about buy and hold that we're going to make here in a second about Burr. And that is, the argument is, you don't have to do this locally. If you're in a market where it's really, really hard to find a property that you could buy at a big enough discount that you could do rehab and refinance and get all, or at least most of your money back out of the deal, or leave very little money in the deal if you want to look at it that way. If you can't find those types of properties in your local market, you don't have to do your local market. This is one of those strategies where you could get really, really good and become an expert at investing in a remote market. Uh, It's different. I mean, the skills you need in order to invest in a remote market are different than the skills you need in a local market. You know, sometimes they're better, sometimes they're worse. It depends on, you know, your personality, your skill set. But you don't have to do this all locally. Um, and you could use this as a way to diversify geographically as well. So I just want to point out that you're not moving into these properties. So you, you literally could do this in a local market or a remote market. And there are markets that are much better for finding bird properties than others. There's properties, there's uh, markets where, you know, it's not uncommon to get discounts when you're buying cash flowing properties. Um, in some markets, that's like near impossible. Like if you live in, uh, you know, my, my local market here is in northern Colorado. And in northern Colorado, at least with the last few years, it's been incredibly hard to find a property that you could buy without getting, you know, bid up a asking price, uh, let alone get a discount on it. So really, really hard to do Burr in northern Colorado. Can it happen? Sure. Um, You know, you're probably not doing it where you leave nothing in the deal, but there's, you know, there's exceptions to everything I say. So uh, as I say that, there's probably someone listening to this being like, well, I just did one. So yeah, there's exceptions to all those, but there's a lot better markets where you can go find properties where you could buy at a pretty big discounts, rehab the property, and leave little or no money in the deal. So you don't have to do it locally. So I'd like to break down one of the ways I categorize real estate investing strategies is whether you're you're kind of involved in a real estate investing strategy as an investor or as a real estate entrepreneur. And a real estate investor is someone who takes money, they invest it in a project with the hope of doing little work maybe sometimes no work, and they expect to get a return on their investment. So they're looking to invest their money, and it's largely a passive thing where they're looking to earn a return. That's a real estate investor. Real estate entrepreneur is often looking to put in maybe a little bit of money, but most of the time, they're looking to invest their time and to start a business where they are doing activities in order to get a dollar per hour or um, you know money for the labor that they're doing. And Brenner is on the on the spectrum cuz it's not exactly black or white thing right cuz like, even if you're doing buy and hold investing you're putting you know money into the deal but you're also having to put in some effort to acquire the property and get the property set up and get a property manager in place or do all the property management yourself so even though there's you know the on the, the there's a spectrum of these things where sometimes you're putting in a lot more work or a lot less work Burr is one of those ones where you're putting in a lot more work. And in most cases, since you're trying to put little or no money in the deal, you're trading your labor, you're trading your time, uh, your effort, and trying to get that. So Burr is really more of a real estate entrepreneur activity than a real estate investing activity. So let's talk about money required. So in an ideal world, like if, every, if all the stars aligned and everything went your way, you would have $0 left in the deal. Right. You'd actually go buy a property at a big enough discount. You might have a little bit of money out of your pocket while you're doing the acquisition. You get your, your kind of like a hard money loan as an example to acquire the property. You do all your rehab. Maybe you're able to borrow the money from your hard money lender to do the rehab. Maybe you have to put that up front. Uh, but then eventually you go and you have another appraisal done you refinance the property, and if everything lines up perfectly, you have nothing left in the deal. You get a rebate, you know, you get all your money back for your holding costs, you get all your money back for your acquisition costs in the first purchase, you get all your money back for your rehab, and you're able to roll in all of your refi costs, your closing costs in order to get the deal. I mean, that's like everything works out perfectly. That's exceptional though. You're much more likely to leave one, two, three, four, five percent. I think five percent is very, very common to maybe ten percent in the deal. You know, sometimes in an exceptional situation, maybe it's even a little bit more than ten percent in a deal. You're still able to get a discount when everything's said and done, but you're able to uh, buy a property, get a good rental property, solid rental property, in ideal worlds, and leave little or no money in the deal. You know, it's probably going to be in that five to ten percent range. I'd say for most people, but uh, you know, it, it, the closer you can get to zero, the better you are. So. For money required, ideally it's nothing, but you're more likely talking about probably 5% or 10% of the the purchase price, not a purchase price, of the after repaired value in the deal. Plus, in addition to that money, any deferred down payment. So I like to call negative cash flow deferred down payment, because in most cases, if we had put 20% or 25% down on a deal, it would have positive cash flow. But since we're buying a property and we're leaving, very little money in the deal, you know, 0%, 5%, 10% uh, when we are acquiring these properties, a lot of times, not every single time, depends on the market and depends on the property you buy and the interest rates. But a lot of times you're going to have negative cash flow on a property. When you do all of your income and expenses, you're going to do it, light up you know, your rents and the other income you have like laundry or anything like that in a property minus, you know, vacancy, minus taxes, minus insurance, minus your mortgage payment, minus maintenance, minus your property management. Like all of those expenses on a property, when you subtract those from your income, a lot of times that's going to be negative. Um, And so what I like to refer to that as is deferred down payment because you could have put more down and not had that negative down payment, negative out cash flow. And so I like to refer to that as deferred down payment. You could choose to either put more down or you could choose to have a little bit of negative cash flow over time to do that. And so in addition to whatever you're going to leave in the deal, a lot of times you're going to have a deferred down payment. And I would actually classify Burr properties as having a slightly higher chance of having deferred down payment or negative cash flow. Why? Why would I say that? You know, obviously, if you're trying to go buy a property and you're, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to get this big discount on the property so that you could rehab it and then put a tenant in there, you know, rent it out, and then you're going to be able to refinance and leave little money in the deal, why would you be more likely to have negative cash flow on a deal like that than maybe buying a buy-and-hold property or a house hacking property or a nomad property? Well, it has to do with selection. It is true that you can find a deal where you're able to get this huge discount. And it also happens to be an ideal cash flowing rental property. But if you think about it in terms of like what your chances are, you're much more likely to find either an amazing cash flowing property where you're able to buy a property where the economics, the rent to price ratio, the the demand for that property, you're able to get really good rents and really strong uh, tenants in the property um, with like a, a more traditional buy and hold or house hack or nomad property. It's unlikely or less likely for you to be able to go find a property that you could buy at this big enough discount that you could do the rehab and be able to pull all your money out and that also happens to be an amazing rental property can it happen where you got both of them absolutely but i think you're more likely to either find one or the other and i will also tell you um it it seems to me that a lot of investors they tend to they tend to focus more on can they acquire this with little or no down than they do on whether or not it's going to make a really good property for their portfolio. If you are just doing buy and hold, you're much more selective in the properties that you acquire. You're really focused in on that cash flow. So you tend to buy these properties that have really good cash flow, rent, long-term rental or short-term rental economics. When you're doing the BRRRR strategy, a lot of times you're so caught up in this idea of being able to buy a property where you have little or no money down the deal that you're like, oh, it's secondary that this thing is not going to cash flow as well. And so that's why I'm saying it's slightly more common for you to have deferred down payment, a.k.a. negative cash flow when you do a bird deal than when you go and do traditional buy and hold, house hacking or nomad. Now. It sure helps that you buy the property at a big discount because getting a discount really improves your cash flow. I mean, you're only financing that one portion of the deal. Although if you're doing a traditional buy and hold and you're leaving nothing in the deal and you got 20% of equity in your property, it's the same starting position that you have when you have a burr property that you're doing you know, 20% left in the deal then you do 20% left in the deal for a buy and hold in most cases. But there are some downsides of doing BRRRR in that a lot of times the, the financing you get when you do your refinance is at a little higher, slightly higher interest rate than you'd get if you did your traditional buy and hold upfront. Not always. I think that there are some loan programs where you can get very, very close or sometimes you can do just as good. But I think there are some advantages historically to buying buy and hold properties where you get 20% down to you're acquiring the property that way. Okay, let me make sure I covered all my notes here. I talked about finding properties that you can get at a discount, and the ideal rents are less common. Buying at a discount means that it helps with cash flow. Interest rates on the refined loans can be higher than purchase money mortgages. And with buying old house hacking nomad, you can often be more selective and find better cash flow deals because that's what you're focusing on. And, of course, there are lots of exceptions to that. So, really, the money required, I've covered already uh, the the amount you leave in the deal. That's going to be a requirement of the money you have in there. Any deferred down payments. So that's that negative cash flow you've got. And then, of course, you need reserves. It would be stupid for you to go buy a property and try to do it with no reserves. So is this really a strategy you can do with $0? I don't think so. I mean, even if you could find a property that you have nothing in, so that would be $0 that you're leaving in the deal. Maybe you have a property where you have no negative cash flow. But even with both of those, you need to have reserves. And so I think... You know, I think at a minimum, you're going to want to have six months of reserves on a property that you're acquiring as a rental. So no matter even if you can find a deal where you're able to leave nothing in the deal and you can get a property where you don't have any deferred down payment or negative cash flow, you're still going to need reserves. And so this is really not a true nothing down, no money required strategy. It could be nothing down in that you really don't need any money for the down payments because you're able to get, you know, a deal where you have no money left in the deal. But for the most part, you'll still have the need for reserves. Okay. So credit required. It is true. Often you can get a hard money loan for the initial purchase before you do the refinance. And a lot of those are um, you know, asset-based loans where they're really looking at the property primarily in order to do the loan itself. Although I think a lot of hard money lenders are still looking at the individual borrower uh, for those. It's, it's possible you could find one that's exceptional and that doesn't look at that. Um, but uh, over time, I think that the majority of people, the majority of hard money lenders are still looking at the individual for doing the, the loan there. So you can get a loan where you you can get the initial purchase money oftentimes with little credit required. But when you go to do that cash out refinance, most of those loans are going to be ones where you need to have a good credit score. And a typical credit score needed for a lot of these conventional loans is about 640 credit score. Now, there are Exceptions for more unusual loan products, these tend to be adjustable rate mortgages or at higher rates uh, and better credit often gets you a better interest rate in general. But I think a credit score of about 640 is gonna be needed for this. Now, don't go to your lender and say, well, James on his recording said I only needed a 640, so you definitely have to give me a loan because he told me 640. No, that's not how it works. (laughs) You go to the lender and they tell you what the current lending requirements are because these things can change over time. And you have to find out for them what you need to qualify. And uh, you can go find out from them exactly what the number is. But in, historically, it's about 640 is what the credit score is for being able to do these. So go talk to your lender and find out. And I would, before I did Burr, I would make sure I had both my financing to do the initial acquisition and I knew exactly and was qualified, pre-qualified to be able to do this uh, cash out um, or not cash out, the, uh, the refinance, rate and term refinance in order to be able to pull all my money out of the deal. Um, in order to do the birth thing before I bought the property, because there's few things worse. Well, I guess there's, there's some strategy to do, but there are a few things worse in my mind than going through all the work of thinking you're going to buy this property, rehab it, thinking you're going to convert it to a rental, only to find out that you could not get this rehab loan after you've you know done all the labor and gotten in the deal. So you can still probably sell it and make money, but a lot of extra effort to do that. Okay, some less common uh, situations. If you're if you find a lender doing more creative lending, that's a possibility as well. Or if you're buying without a loan, at all cash, a credit score is not required. So if you're trying to buy these properties, I guess that's technically not BRRRR because You're not doing the refi in the end. But sometimes people buy properties at a discount just to convert them to straight rentals, and sometimes people are buying those just for cash. So that's the case there. But that really wouldn't be burr because burr involves the refi. All right. So what are the skills required in order to do the burr strategy? And if, if you compare this to some of the previous classes we taught on buy and hold, house hacking, nomad, and those types of things, you'll notice that Burr has some additional requirements, some different additional skills that are required. So the primary skills required for doing Burr are, number one, you need to analyze deals. You need to be able to do the deal analysis for once you're done doing the rehab and you have your refinance done, will it cash flow? And also the... Deal analysis to say, okay, I'm going to acquire this property, here are the costs for doing my rehab, here are the costs for doing my holding costs, here's the initial acquisition costs, here's my refinance costs, you know, and then will I have, how much will I have in the deal, and then go do your deal analysis after that. So that's a skill you need, deal analysis skill. In addition to that, you need rehab estimating skills. Or you need to hire someone who has rehab estimating skills in order to help you find out how much it's going to cost you to take this property that you just bought at this big discount and do all the work required in order to make it a good long-term buy-and-hold property. So you need someone who can estimate what work is is required and how much it will cost to do that. In addition to that, you need to be able to find discounted deals that also cash flow. And in my opinion, this should not be overlooked. This is probably one of the main things that you're being compensated for by being able to find these deals. This is, you know, the the equity you're earning by doing this is being able to find deeply discounted deals that you could do the rehab and be in the property for very little or nothing, nothing, you know, down on the after the refi. And that will also cash flow once you're out of the deal, you know, once you're done with your refi. So I think you need to be able to find those types of deals. And I think that's an exceptional skill to have. In addition to that, you need to be able to acquire the property, and then you need to do the refi financing. So uh, you need to be able to do whatever acquisition financing you line up, hard money loans or private money or your own cash, and then you need to be able to do the refi financing in order to be able to do that. It's another skill. And then different than the rehab estimating, you need to be able to either do the rehab yourself or you need to be able to manage a rehab team. So you need to be the person that swings the hammer and goes in there, and does all the work, you know, brings in the subs if you have those guys doing certain things. Or you need to be the person that you know, manages a team of other people that are doing all that work for you. And then in addition to that, once you convert the property to a long-term rental, you need all the traditional skills of property management. And again, that's either you doing the property management yourself directly or you hiring a professional property manager. And then you need the skills of being able to manage the manager. So I have a note here, skills of property management can be can vary depending on whether you're managing long-term rentals yourself, hiring a property manager, or doing short-term rentals. So three different types of management skills depending on which way you're going. And the skills of rehab can vary depending on whether you're doing it yourself, managing contractors, or managing a general contractor. So realize that the skills that you require, in my opinion, are much more involved than buy and hold house hacking, or nomad. Um, I think th- this is a much more active, much more real estate entrepreneurial activity, and it requires more skills and higher levels of skill than a lot of the other strategies would. All right, so um, Shane Paris of Farnham Street, I finally went and looked up his name. I had forgotten his name for the last three presentations and kept forgetting to look it up, but he has a blog called Farnham Street, and probably about two or three months ago now, he wrote an article that talked about this idea of stability. And the way he described it, it, wasn't real estate specific. It was this idea of, you know, having something that's stable where if you don't do anything to it, it'll be fine. It'll kind of just keep, you know, operating on its own. It's not going to hurt you if you don't pay attention to it and you kind of abandon it in some ways. But an active, active stability uh, kind of item is something that if you don't do something with it, it will hurt you. Um, and so I, I was thinking about this in terms of real estate and real estate investing specifically. And I was thinking, you know, real estate is actively stable in general. But I think there's even kind of like gradients of more actively stable versus less actively stable. And so a couple examples of this are if you go and you get a fully advertising, like a 30-year loan that pays off, you know, the, the, the payment itself will pay down to zero after 30 years. Um, you know, that's an advertising loan. The loan actually will pay itself off over that l- lifespan of 30 years versus a interest only or a balloon loan that you pay on it for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. And at the end of that period of time, there is a lump sum that is due at the end of it. Well, an advertising loan is more stable. It's, it's still actively stable. So you have to be actively involved, but it's more stable than a balloon type mortgage on there or doing buy and hold is less actively stable than a uh, flipping properties or lease option or the BRRRR strategy. And so BRRRR, in my opinion, is very actively stable. It is one of those things where you have to be actively managing, especially in the beginning. Once you convert it to a long-term rental, it becomes less active. But at the very beginning, you're very active in this thing. You're, you're, You're actively acquiring the property. You're actively rehabbing the property. You're actively putting a tenant in there, and you're actively refinancing the property to try to pull out as much money as you can. So it is a very active strategy to be doing um that you just need to pay attention to all right let's talk about scalability so the biggest challenge in my opinion with the burst strategy and it's probably other challenges too like being able to qualify for those but the biggest challenge in my opinion is probably finding deals it's it's often limited by deal flow And I suspect there are markets where you could find a lot more Burr properties than other ones. But in general, I think the the challenge with Burr is being in a market or finding deal flow where you could buy at a big enough discount to be able to leave nothing, ideally, or very, very little in the deal, and then convert that to a property that you would like to have in your portfolio as a rental. And I think that's the part that a lot of folks uh, overlook. But. So as far as scalability, how can you scale this thing? Can you, can you acquire as many properties as you want to acquire in order to hit whatever your financial goals are? And with Burr, I think that you're limited by deal flow, finding enough quality deals. So from that perspective, it's harder to scale. It's going to mean slower acquisition speed because you got to find deals that are good enough quality to be able to acquire them at a big enough discount and also have them be good long-term rentals. However, on the other hand, kind of argue the other side of this, it requires significantly less down payment than traditional buy and hold properties to acquire. When you do traditional buy and hold, you know, you're able to get a property for 20% down or 25% down. In some rare cases, if you want to get PMI and the owner occupant properties 15% down. But when you're doing the burst strategy, you know, you could leave 5% in the deal. And that's still better than leaving, you know, 15% or 20% or 25%. So from that perspective, it gets easier to scale. It requires less capital upfront to do that, more labor. Because you got to do all the rehab and refinance and you know, get, getting all the tenants and getting the property set up. So you know, you know, from a scalability perspective, I don't think this is as easy to scale as you might think. If your limitation is down payments, then I think this definitely helps you along that path. Uh, you still got to be able to qualify for the loans. you got to qualify for the refi loans. And if the, they're not cash flowing good enough, then you need to have the debt-to-income ratio in order to be able to qualify for the refis, in order to be able to acquire the properties and do the refi outs. So that's what I think about scalability with the burst strategy. All right, let's talk about risk exposure. In my opinion, the burst strategy has a high risk rating. And I think some of the other strategies we've talked about, the buy and hold, the nomad, and the house sacking, we, we kind of rated these a little bit lower in risk. And the reason why is I think you have extra risks when you're doing the burst strategy that you don't have with buy and hold or house sacking or nomad. So... You have a double risk exposure, in my opinion. You have the risks during rehab and the risks of long-term rentals. So what risks do you have? So the risks include amplified returns, and these can be both positive or negative. But whenever you have a small down payment, it amplifies the returns. So if you have a little amount of money invested and you make a return on it, a positive return on it, the returns look larger because the amount of money you made is on a small amount. But it goes the other way too. If you have a loss, if you have negative cash flow or the property value goes down, or you have something go if something happens to the property, you have a negative return on that, that also gets amplified because you had a small amount of money in the deal. So you can get amplified returns with the burst strategy, just like you can with uh, you know, the nomad strategy, or in some cases house hacking if you're putting little down when you're buying these owner occupant. Properties. So that's the same risk we'd see there. But you see it with Burr because a lot of times you have nothing in the deal or very little in the deal. In addition to that, I believe you have an increased likelihood of negative cash flow, those deferred down payments we talked about when I talked about money required. And the reason why is you have small or no down payments in the deal. So a lot of times, you know, you're know, you leaving little money in the deal, and that's why you have a little bit of deferred down payment. If you had put more down, you wouldn't have the negative cash flow. But because you decided to buy a property and try to do a refi where you left no money in the deal, then a lot of times you have you know, some negative cash flow there. Uh, in addition to that, you have limited selection of the ideal cash flowing properties. Really, one of the characteristics of trying to do burr is finding those properties you can get at a big enough discount where you're able to leave little or no money in the deal. So a lot of times those don't cash flow nearly as well. And so you have a limited selection of these ideal cash flowing properties because they also need to meet the criteria of needing rehab and being able to buy them at a big enough discount where it makes sense to do those. And then in addition... You have an increased likelihood of negative cash flow because you get slightly worse financing and interest rates when you do these refinances, especially if you're doing cash-out refinances. So a lot of times you get penalized a little bit on that interest rate. Not all the time, but a lot of times you'll be penalized with doing those types of loans. And so for those three reasons: smaller no-down payments, the limited selection of the ideal cash flow properties that also qualify as Burr, and that slightly worse cash flowing interest rates are the reasons why you'll have negative cash flow. So that's an additional risk you see in Burr. In addition to that, you have all the rehab risks, so all the risks you have of doing you know, construction on a property, opening up a property and finding out that things are much worse than you thought. Or the, um, you know, there happens to be a hurricane while you, right after you bought the property and all the costs of plywood and lumber goes through the roof and you have that risk. Or you can't get your uh, your rehab people uh, to do the job. They're, you know, they prove unreliable or something happens to them. So you have all the risks of rehab. So that's, that's an added risk that you don't often have with buy and hold, house hacking or Nomad, unless you're buying properties that need work. In addition to that, you have the interest rate risk exposure while rehabbing. A lot of times you're not locking in your interest rate when you have a six-month rehab project. If you have a three-month rehab project, a lot of times you're floating that interest rate, and you know, if you caught it just like we did here the last few months where we saw the interest rates rise very dramatically over a very short period of time, you may have thought your cash-flowing property was going to be cash-flowing at X, and now it's cash-flowing much worse than X because the interest rates rose by you know two points in two months. If that was the time when you were rehabbing your property, that could be problematic. And so you have this interest rate risk exposure while you're doing the rehab. And then you have these, this the risks that we normally see with house hacking and buy and hold and nomading, you know, a price decline during ownership. You know, while you've converted it to a rental, prices can go down. I mean, honestly, it could go down while you're doing the rehab too, but this is I really thought of it during the time when you're buying, uh, when you're holding the property as a rental. You know, you could see a decline in home values during that time, or rents could decline during your ownership period. Those same risks appear in the buy and hold and house hacking and nomad as well, but they're not exclusive to the birth strategy. And then, in addition to that, if for something happens and you're unable to make those payments on the loan, you have a credit risk. You know, if if you can't make payments on your mortgage, then your credit is at risk of doing that. And that's the same as buy and hold, and nomad, and house hacking. Um, and then in addition to the ones, you, these also are shared with Bidehold, Nomad, and House hacking, you have the typical tenant property management risk. You know, you have the the risk of being sued for violating fair housing. You know, people say you discriminate against them by, um, you know, by trying to put a tenant in the property uh, or, you know, someone slips and falls in your property. You know, you have those risks as well. And some of these can be offset by some insurance, but, you know, at the same time, you do have those risks uh, doing BRRRR. Some of them are unique to Burr, you know, like the rehab risks and uh, interest rate risk while doing the rehab. And you probably increased likelihood of negative cash flow. Um, but some of them are shared across all their strategies as well. That's why I think Burr has a higher risk rating, which I, I would consider just high in general. But it's higher than buy and hold, nomad, and house hacking, in my opinion. So let's talk about profit speed, how quickly you can get at money, and what's the magnitude of the money you can get at. So um, if you've never seen this before, this is my return quadrants. And it basically shows the four different primary areas of return that you get from rental properties, plus the return you get from reserves, and then we sum them up. So the ones on the right-hand side are more like cash now. That's cash flow and tax benefits, you know, depreciation, cash flow from depreciation. And then on the left-hand side is more like cash later, appreciation and debt pay down. So those tend to be, you know, right side is more immediate money. The left side is more like wealth building sort of thing. And then the ones on top, appreciation and cash flow, those are more speculative. They're, they're relying on the market to perform well. You're, you're relying on rents to continue to go up and stay where they are. Or property values to continue to go up um, as you want to see appreciation there. And if the market goes down, we see a drop in prices, you'll have some, you know, negative appreciation there. Or if rents don't hold up, you know, if we see a decline in rents or a kind of pullback in rents, you might see your cash flow dip or, or go negative if, if it's really close. And then the ones on the bottom are less speculative. They're they're more certain. And that is the debt pay down portion of it. So as long as you make the payments on the mortgage you have, you're going to pay down a certain amount of debt each year until that thing is paid off if you have an amortizing loan. And then, of course, unless the tax law changes, you're going to get the tax benefits of depreciation. So the ones on the bottom are more certain, less speculative, and the ones on the top are more speculative and less certain. And then I already went over the left and right ones. So in terms of BRR, you typically start seeing a profit. Within six months. Usually it's after you do your rehab and you get your tenant in the property um, and you're able to start getting some cash flow on it. That's that tends to be when you see it, uh, your profits start coming in. And then rents and security deposits are typically paid in advance. So you usually get l- that a little bit front-loaded. And then cash flow is usually a percentage return on the amount you invested. In. So if you think about you know leaving nothing in the deal, then of course you'd have, you know, in theory at least, an unlimited um, you know, an, an infinite return on your um your investment you have zero dollars left in the deal, although you're always gonna have reserves. So it's never really going to be zero unless you happen to get, you know, a property that you could pull your reserves out with a cash out refinance. Then I guess technically it could be unlimited um, in that way, the infinite returns. Uh, but usually it's considered to be a percentage of the amount you had left in the deal, uh, cash out cash return, or if you're buying it or all cash, it's cap rate in that case. And then you often have with Burr, which is relatively unique for Burr strategy, you often have a big paper return from forced appreciation. So when you acquire the property and you, you know, you're able to capture that, that appreciation, the equity you had in the deal that uh, you kind of worked with the rehab in order to capture, you know, that's a big paper return you have. Most of the time, though, you're not able to spend that. It just kind of shows up on your balance sheet as, oh, now I got an extra you know, whatever it is, $50,000 from this property that I bought um, you know at a big discount. And then you have cash flow from depreciation, and that could be cash flow with each paycheck. So you can go to your employer and say, hey, I'd like to change my exemptions because I know I'm going to have this depreciation benefit, and I don't need to pay in as much in taxes on my paycheck, so I can get a little bit more from each paycheck when I do that. Or you can get it at the end of the year in terms of tax savings, whether you you know, pay in less if you owe money or that you, um, you, know, you actually get a uh, rebate at the end of the year if you didn't make any adjustments and you usually get a rebate so your your exemptions are not set up the way they should be. Okay, so that's profit speed. So how do you find these bird deals? Because I think that's one of, stri- one of the biggest challenges with this strategy. So the most common methods for finding bird properties is going to be inside the MLS, for sale by owner, and wholesalers. So you can find deals that need a lot of work listed for sale in the, in the MLS. You can find them there. Uh, You can also find people that are looking to sell their property for sale by owner. They have opted not to list it in the MLS. And there's really two subgroups of these for sale by owner groups. There's the ones that are actively marketing their property. These are the for sale by owners that are putting a sign in the yard or they're putting their property up on Zillow or Craigslist or Redfin or wherever they're putting their property to advertise it. And then you have the other group, which is the hidden for sale by owners. And these are the guys that they may not be actively marketing their property, and they may not even really know they want to sell. But now you've put marketing in front of them. They're like, "Well, I might consider selling my property." Or you network with somebody. You know, you're at your church or you're at a you know a club or something like that, and you're talking to people about your business of trying to find properties that need rehab. And someone says, "Well, I, I have a property that needs a lot of work. You know, we had tenants in it, and the tenants trashed the place. And now I'd like to acquire that property. And uh, now I, I'd like to sell that property rather." And you're like, "Well, I'd be." interested in buying it. And so they could be hidden in that way that you have to find either through marketing, uh, putting out, you know, ads or postcards or, you know, uh pay-per-click or any of those strategies. We'll cover those in another class, but all the different strategies for marketing in order to find sellers for semi-owners, or you could do through networking, you know, being out and about and talking to people about what you do. And then the third group is wholesalers. Wholesalers are usually the ones doing the marketing. In some cases, they're providing properties inside the MLS, although a lot of wholesalers are doing direct mail or pay-per-click or have a website, and they're marketing or they're doing networking, and they're trying to find deals, and then they're finding the deals, putting them under contract, and then they're assigning the rights of their contract to you in, in exchange for a fee. So that's really what wholesaling is. And those are probably the most common methods for you to find Burr properties. Now you can find Burr properties other ways. You could do auctions. You could find foreclosure auctions or IRS auctions or, you know, um, you know, other types of like DEA, you know, drug-seized houses or stuff like that that you you could buy at auction. Or in some cases, a bank may have properties that they've taken back in foreclosure and they've got that the bank actually owns, real estate owned by the bank, and they may be willing to sell you the properties. So that's a more unusual method. Or maybe you go and you find a property where the seller hasn't been paying their taxes and you're able to buy a, a tax lien on the property. And then we, after waiting a while, the seller opts or the, uh, the owner of the property opts not to pay their taxes and you're able to uh, foreclose on the property with your tax lien. And you're able to acquire property that way. So uh, another more unusual strategy, I'd say highly unusual to do a strategy that way in most cases, but those are other ways for you to find the bird type deals. All right. So searching for bird deals, you need to find uh, two things. And I've said this before many times today, but but basically you're looking for deeply discounted property that you could buy, fix up, and then pull out as much money as you can. And great cash flowing property after it's rehab. And, and in my opinion, most investors are going to let the second criteria where they are most concerned about the cash flowing property, they're going to let that one slip because they believe, hey, if I could just get a great deal with nothing down, that's worth it for me, and and yeah, it's not the best property for cash flow, but that's okay because I'm able to buy this property with very little in the deal, and that's more important to me. Um, you know, depending on what you're trying to accomplish, that may not be the best strategy, and we, we could show numbers for that probably in another class. But that's uh, that may be short sighted. You know, I think that's, that's the truth, that most people are going to be much more concerned with being able to find the property that they could buy with very little money in the deal or no money in the deal. And that's going to be the most important criteria. So you need to be able to find those two things, both a deeply discounted property and one that has great cash flow. And you're typically searching for all the fixer upper type terms in the MLS or, you know, through wholesalers or stuff like that. So, you know, terms like handyman special or fixer or fix or TLC or needs work or mold or asbestos or damage or fire or smoke or water damage, you know, like all of the terms that you look for something that needs repairs on property. So, you know, when you're setting up your search, you're asking your real estate agent to help you find these types of deals, you know, make sure you get those search terms added so that you can find potential deals to do that. And, you know, you're going to find weird ones, right? Like, you know, you 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 do a search for the term smoke as an example, and they're going to say, uh, you know, smoke, smoked glass windows in this room or something like that and that's not really what you're looking at but you'll get some false positives you still need to manually sift and sort and go through those and make sure that the numbers work and that the property really makes sense so you better to have false positives than to miss the property completely in my opinion when you're looking for these deals so how do you analyze these deals well, doing the burr part the the like fix up part um you know the the rehab section of it, you'll want to use your own rehab spreadsheet. I probably will provide one of those at some point, but uh, I don't have one ready for you but for the actual rental part of it uh the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet is ideal for doing the rental part, so you have to do the property after you do your refinance. You'll do a uh, you kind of like put down how much you have in the deal and what your rent is on the property and all the other expenses of it and you could do that. You can get you can get a copy of the spreadsheet at realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash spreadsheet and it is I call it the world's greatest real estate deal analysis spreadsheet because it's awesome for doing uh, rental property analysis as to whether or not you should buy and hold a property. Um, And then for the other part of it, for the acquisition, the rehab, and then doing the refinance part of it, you'll want to do that analysis separately to make sure that those numbers work using a different spreadsheet. All right, so what market conditions are good for somebody who is trying to buy uh, Burr properties? Well, obviously, you need markets where you can buy properties that need work at a discount. If you can't do that, I mean, it's hard to do the Burr strategy without buying properties at a discount. So that's like the number one criteria. But ideally, otherwise, you need markets with good cash flow. And markets with strong appreciation and rent appreciation, you want to be buying in a market where you're going to get some good appreciation, and in markets where you're going to get some good rent appreciation, and and cash flow is going to improve over time. It's challenging to do the burst strategy in markets with significant negative cash flow with reasonable down payments. You know, it, you know, a property that even if you put 20% down, it wouldn't have good cash flow, or markets with no or negative appreciation and rent appreciation. So you know, properties that. You know, they're the same price they were 10 years ago or properties where rents are going down because the population is declining and you have a surplus of inventory and, and low demand. You know, those are those are hard markets to do this strategy in. Um, and I think in some markets, not all markets, but in some markets, the way you're able to find properties that need a lot of work and you're able to buy at a big discount is because demand is a little bit softer in those. Um, you know, when we see in really, really hot markets, Even the properties that needed a lot of work were getting bid up and going for much closer to retail, where there wasn't nearly as much room to be able to buy these properties at a big enough discount to be able to do the refinance out and leave very little in the deal. And remember, it doesn't have to be your local market. You could do this remotely, specifically with BERT. So accessibility or availability. So these can be some of the hardest deals to find. It's not like you're just trying to find a property that you could buy at a big discount, do rehab on, and then sell it, make a profit. Those are easier, right? Because you don't have to find a property where you can do that. And after you're done doing that, it's going to have amazing cash flow. That's part of the challenge. It needs to be both a deeply discounted deal where you can go in, do rehab, and pull as much money as you can uh, out of the property so that you leave as little in the deal as you can. Um, And and then once you do that, it has to also cash flow like crazy. So these can be some of the hardest deals to find, in my opinion. Um, They must be both that fixer-upper and good cash-flowing rentals. And some markets are much easier than others. So you can invest in remote markets to find these deals. So as far as being able to have accessibility and availability, this is a hard one. It's not like nomading where, you know, a lot of properties would look at nomading and that we're being selected based on a whole different level of criteria. These are like... There's not that many that come along. And so this could be your limiting factor. So can you use your retirement accounts to do birth strategies? Yeah, you can use your, birth, your retirement account to invest in birth strategies with a self-directed retirement account because you're not moving into the property. You're not living in the property. You will be limited. And the amount of rehab that you could do directly if you're using your own retirement account, because I don't think you're supposed to be uh, doing the labor on your properties that you're doing that. There may be some exceptions with some types of uh, self-directed retirement accounts, but in general, you're not supposed to be doing the labor yourself. So you could be limited in what you could do with that. Uh, And it may also change the financing you use. A lot of these self-directed retirement accounts, self-directed 401K, self-directed IRA accounts, they require a much larger down payment or loan to value when you do your, your refi on the loan. And so you may not be thinking about, you know, 80% loan to value, you may be thinking more like 65% loan to value, which makes it much, much harder for you to be able to acquire properties um, at those ratios and leave very little in the deal. So now we're gonna talk about the quantitative analysis. Up to this point, we've talked primarily about the qualitative analysis, like the qualities of doing the burst strategy, like you know, accessibility and scalability and risk and down payments required. Now we're gonna really dive into numbers. And so I, I will start off, I, I hope it is my sincere hope that I have not been discouraging to you about doing the burst strategy because it, it is a lot of effort and a lot of work to find deals that are amazing. But when it works, it is absolutely amazing. Like this was my primary strategy. This is the strategy I started with. And w- when you can find these deals and you can and acquire properties and leave very little in the deal or nothing in the deal um, and, they, and they cash flow, it's awesome. I mean, just absolutely amazing. So it's worth the effort if you're willing to put in the effort to try to find these. Um, if I had to start over again and do this from the beginning, I'm not sure this would be my only strategy. I probably would do this, and i try to find as many of these as I could, unless I found a honeypot where I could get an unlimited number. Um, I probably would be doing other strategies in parallel at the same time, trying to, um, to justify, or, or trying to, to speed along the process by doing more than one strategy at the same time. But here you go. So for the quantitative analysis, when Burr works, it could be amazing. So how well does the birth strategy perform toward achieving financial independence? And I'll just make a note here. Each of these things that I'm doing here, each of the analysis we did, they literally could be their own hour, two hour, you know, some of them full day classes by themselves. Uh, I could dig in deep and I could explain to you how things are working and, and look at all the different metrics and how risky they are and how risk compares doing one strategy to another. And is it better to do more down payment? Is it better to keep higher reserves? What's the impact of doing reserves? What's the impact of doing property management? So there's all sorts of variations subtlety and subtlety and kind of nuance that we could do um, where I could do an entire – hour, hour, two-hour, full-day class on each one of these. So I'm going to do like a big-picture overview where we talk about how long it takes to achieve financial independence for a fictitious couple with very specific assumptions, okay? Um, It is naive, though, to generalize these results. Don't think, oh, it is always that way because when James did his analysis, in this example with Norm and Norma, which is who we're kind of using the prototype uh, through a lot of this modeling, you know, when he did those analysis with them, it seemed like this was better. Well, this won't always be better for everyone in every situation. You know, if Norm and Norma were in a different real estate market or they were saving a different amount or they had different uh, income or different different debt to income ratios, you know, all those things would uh, impact the results. And so in that case, something may be better another way than what we're saying here. So don't generalize this and say it's always better to do X or it's always better to be wise. I think that would be foolish for you to do. Okay. so. Um, I'm going to use the same properties we've been using throughout all the different examples, even though I could make a really strong case that you're not as likely to find properties that have both the discount or rehab capability and the cash flowing attributes that we've been using for the traditional buy and hold house hacking and nomad that we've used in the previous classes. I am going to for tonight just to try to make it a closer Apples to apples comparison, it's not the same. But just to try to make it closer, I'm going to use the exact same property with the same economics. You know, same price, same rent, uh, same taxes, same insurance kind of expenses to do that. Um, you could make a case that the properties are going to be a little bit worse. You know, uh, maybe they're a little cheaper. Maybe they're, um, you know, you're able to get a property that's, um, you know, is, is a little bit less expensive than you would otherwise pick, or maybe they're more expensive. You know, there's there's lots of different reasons why they would be different, but. For the sake of simplifying as much as I can, I'm using the same property. You would still be limited by your 45% debt-to-income ratio, any down payments that you're leaving in the property, so I'll show you some examples of those, and having reserves. So it's not like you could do an unlimited number of these, right? Um, And part of it's going to be you trying to find excuse me, it's still limited by 45% debt to income and you're still limited by whatever amount you're leaving in the deal and you're still limited by having reserves. And I think I use six months reserves to be able to do these because I think that's a prudent number to use. Um, and so I'm gonna do three different cases of birth. I'm gonna do a, a situation where they leave nothing in the deal. That's like the ideal situation where they've, they've actually are able to do this and not have any money left in the deal. I'm gonna do one where they leave 5% in the deal, and I'm gonna do ones where they leave 10% left in the deal. And I'll show you how long it takes, Norm and Norma are kind of prototypical modeling people, how long it takes them to achieve financial independence with those three cases uh, with our assumptions there. But let's first define what financial independence actually means mathematically. So financial independence is when your investments, in this case, mostly rental properties, although a little bit comes from other things like their stock market account, but it's when your investments can provide you with your minimum target monthly income in retirement. What we might call either lean fire or just fire, depending on if, if you're really looking at your minimum as, this is my like, hey, absolute minimum I need. Ideally, I'd like to have more. But really, we're saying, okay, in this particular case, how long will it take them for their investments to produce 5,000 dollars a month, adjusted up for inflation? So it's 5,000 dollars in today's dollars, but you know, five years from now it's more than that. And the three sources of their investments to provide money toward that 5,000 dollars a month is, number one. Passive income from Social Security, any pensions they have, and and or annuities. So in this case, they don't have any pensions, they don't have any annuities, and I assume Social Security for them starts at age 67, which I'll talk about here in a second, but that's the three sources of income for number one. Number two, net cash flow from rentals. So this is primarily what they're going to be relying on. They're looking to have the cash flow after all their expenses on their properties, so all the rents and any extra income they've got coming from property like laundry money or something like that, minus Principal, interest, taxes, insurance, maintenance, vacancy, property management, if they had any. In this case, they're managing the properties themselves. So anything, all their income minus all those expenses is their net cash flow on their rentals. And the third thing is any extra money that they have in their bank account invested in the stock market at uh, multiplied by their safe withdrawal rate. So the three things are that passive income for Social Security, pensions, or annuities. Any net cash flow from their rentals and then the yearly safe, withdrawal rate times their invested assets, the sum of all three of those need to provide enough money for them to meet their minimum target monthly income retirement when they do that, we consider them financially independent. Okay, so. Um. All these are changeable assumptions. You can go to your city. I'll I'll, I'll send you a link um, in the show notes here, but it's realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model. um, And it allows you to pick a city. And in that city, it has like examples of some of these scenarios and just go click through and you'll be able to change all these assumptions. But um, in this case, uh, here are the assumptions I use. They're all changeable. So this is Norm and Norma. They're married. They're both 21 years old. They've recently graduated from college. And they're working in a technology department of a large healthcare business. They have a total of $10,000 saved up, not $10,000 each, $10,000 total between the two of them. They earn combined between the two of them, $72,000 per year. So basically they're earning about $18 per hour, working 2,000 hours per year or $36,000 per year each combined at $72,000. An important side note, um, Burr. It's like getting a second job, right? I mean, all the effort of going in and finding the property, doing the rehab or overseeing the rehab, getting the tening, and then refinancing the property. It's it's really extra. It's like a job, right? It's like real estate entrepreneurship. So, really, we should be comparing this to, you know, these guys if they're going to do buy and hold or house hacking uh, or nomad or something like that. It really should be. It be more fair to kind of compare it to them doing that plus having an extra job where they have this extra incoming in, but we didn't do it that way. And so, you know, the, the numbers are going to be great for Burr because if you can do the Burr strategy, it looks awesome. And I'll show you that here in a second, but really it's it's a slightly unfair comparison because they're doing a lot of labor. It's, it's a very active type of investing strategy, um, and it really should be compared to them doing another job, but I didn't do it that way. Um, they are saving about a thousand dollars per month before they buy any houses. And in the case of Burr, they're not buying any owner-occupant properties. They're continuing to rent while they do the Burr strategy to acquire rentals. They're obsessed about achieving financial independence so that they can retire early. They want to do fire. Uh, they want to find their best path to financial independence together. And best, best, best doesn't always mean fastest. Sometimes it's fast but less risk. So we'll talk about that in another class. We won't won't have time to talk about it tonight. Uh, They're both gonna take social security at age 67. So at age 67, social security does kick in. And social security is estimated based on them working until age 67, which if they achieve financial independence, they technically stop working in my modeling, so the modeling is a little bit less conservative in that way, but honestly, if they achieve financial independence before they're 67, it really doesn't matter that Social Security kicked in. It just kind of boosts them, um, but they already achieved financial independence if they did that, and if they hadn't by then, then it really is legit that they work till 67 anyway. So it's good in that way, um, although you could claim that my my modeling is the tiniest bit sloppy and that I just assume that the amount they're getting from Social Security is based on them working till 67, when if they stop working earlier, it's technically not. Okay, I'm also going to be using the interest rates that I um, had in the handout for uh, loan type mortgage insurance comparisons. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. But this shows you all the different interest rates that I'm using in all these different classes for owner-occupant loans and also investment loans. And I did not penalize Burr for doing these refi loans, even though I think sometimes you will see a small um, premium for doing these refis out. And so uh, I'm going to use the 6.625 uh, number for doing the BRRRR strategy. All right, some more uh, changeable assumptions. So I modeled this for 60 years, 720 months. Uh, we assume their tax rate, their effective income tax rate for calculating the cash flow from depreciation is 17.85%. We assume it's a 3% inflation rate. That's the long-term average. Our, the Fed's target rate is 2%. Um, I happen to be recording this at a time of really high inflation, and so the numbers seem really, really low. But over a very long period of time, that is a, that's a good number to use, uh, 3%. Uh, we're using that 6.625% mortgage interest rate. It's 20% equity rate and term refi. So we're using uh, the number as if they're doing a you know rate, rating term refi with 20% equity. Uh, I'm using a best case with no penalty to the rate. For their safe withdrawal rate, we assume that they have a 4% yearly safe withdrawal rate. If you want to go read up on the Trinity study or 4% safe withdrawal rate, you can go read about that online. And then we assume that they need $5,000 in target monthly income and retirement in today's dollars to do that. Ideally, their ideal number is $10,000 a month, although we're not using that in tonight's presentation at all. Okay. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the property. So the property assumptions, and these are all changeable as well, um, it's a $375,000 property, um, and it goes up at a rate of 3% per year. So the property values are going up at the same rate as inflation. Uh, they're going to do either leaving nothing in the deal, having 20% equity, leaving 5% in the deal, having about 15% equity, leaving 10% in the deal, um, and then they're going to do that rate and term refinance. So those are the three options we're going to run, where they are able to leave nothing in there, leave 5% in there, or leave 10% in there. The closing and the refinance costs are already included. I'm not adding any extra ones. So we're assuming that in order to do this, those numbers are already included in their rate and term refi. So um, that's another reason why you could say these numbers are 5%, 10%, because I've assumed that those include all the acquisition costs in the first one, all of the acquisition costs of the refinance costs, uh, rather, on the second one, on second loan. Uh, assuming no seller concessions, So they're buying at a big discount. They're not able to get the seller to contribute toward their closing costs. The interest rate again, 6.625 for that 20% down. There's no PMI. They're doing a 30-year, 360-month mortgage. Rent on the property is $2,600 per month, and it increases at a rate of 3% per year. This is the same we used for selecting an optimal buy and hold property or house hacking or nomading. So I think... Uh, In a lot of cases, the burst strategy would be slightly handicapped. It would be slightly worse um, price-to-cash-flow economics as you would when you had a wide selection. You could pick anything you want, just concerned about getting maximizing cash flow. Um, 3% of the monthly income is assumed vacancy rates, uh, which some people would argue, hey, that's really low. Well, I'm assuming that they're starting 60 to 90 days early before the property is vacant uh, to be able to get a tenant. So I'm assuming that they're really optimizing property management. If in your market, you want to change that number because yours is a little higher, go ahead and do that. But really, when you think about it, the rent you get on a property helps determine what the vacancy rate is, right? If you drop rent, vacancy should go down. If you're trying to push rent, then vacancy should go up. Um, It's kind of like a a flexible number there that you have somewhat control over. 10% of the monthly income is assumed maintenance rate, So we're using 10% of that $2,600 a month to set aside each month for maintenance on the property. We're using 0.75% of the value of the property each year for property taxes. So at $375,000, that's about $2,800 per year in property taxes on the property. And that, as the property value goes up, the taxes on it go up as well. And then 0.4% of the value of the property each year is the assumed property insurance rate. And so that also goes up as the property value increases um, each year. And then this is a residential property and 15% of the purchase price is considered the value of the land. When doing our depreciation recapture or uh, i'm sorry our depreciation calculation for uh cash flow from depreciation for the tax benefits okay all right so let's look at numbers so first thing to start off i'm going to give you some of the numbers from the previous classes we taught um go dig into those if you want more details but i'm going to run through those quickly because it helps to compare how long it takes you to achieve financial independence using these other strategies to the burst strategy to decide which one's going to be the best okay so for um, in the buy and hold class, we talked about what if Norma Norma don't buy any rental properties at all? They, they basically take all of their money and they invest 100% in the stock market. They, they, um, they don't even buy a property to live in. They continue renting. And so they're investing $1,000 a month um, in the stock market. They can retire after 40.17 years or about month 482. So if they invest for 40 years, they'd be you know at 61 years old at the time, and they'd be able to be financially independent by investing in the stock market. We assume the stock market's earning about 8% per year. Okay, um, In our advanced podcast episodes, we do our, our variable rates of return. So when we do the advanced analysis, we actually make the um, home price appreciation random. We make the rent appreciation rate random. We make the mortgage interest rates random over time. We make the um, inflation rate random and we make the stock market rate of return random and so all of those and then we run monte carlo analysis to show you like how having you know property values not always go up by three percent sometimes they go down sometimes they go up sometimes they go up by a lot sometimes they go down by a lot and same thing with rents and mortgage interest rates can rise over time or drop over time um and inflation all that stuff and how that really impacts the strategy so that's more the advanced podcast we're not going to cover that tonight Okay, so if they just invest in stocks, though, it takes about 40 years. they would be about 61 years old by the time they reach financial independence. This is from the buy and hold class. These are all the different scenarios we ran through for buy and hold. We did everything from them buying just an owner-occupant property to live in and otherwise investing in stocks. That takes about 33 years or about seven years faster than uh, not buying the owner-occupant property and just investing in stocks. Um, we did a whole bunch of stuff on buying you know, 10 rental properties. I think we did 20% down, 25% down, and 15% down, and those take about 30 years, 28 years, 30 years, somewhere in that ballpark in order for them to be financially independent. We talked about buying a property to live in and then buying 10, 15% down payment rentals or, 20, or 10, 20% down payment rentals or 10, 25% down payment rentals, and those all took about 33 years, give or take, in order to achieve financial independence. And then we talked about uh, buying properties and converting them to short-term rentals where you get more income on the property. And short-term rentals was a really good strategy for them. Uh, they were able to be financially independent in about 25 years or about 24 years or about 25 years, depending on how much they put down, 20%, 15%, or 25%. Um, and then we did uh, doing buying an owner-occupant property to live in and also buying short-term rentals. And that's take a little bit longer, so it's better for them to keep renting. And just do the short-term rentals if they're really trying to optimize for financial independence. Okay, So those are all the different numbers for the buy and hold. These are the uh, numbers summarized for the Nomad class. So go look at the Nomad class for watching this. But if they buy 10 Nomad properties, so basically they they buy a property with 5% down, they move in, they live there for a year, um, or however long it takes them to save up their next 5% and be able to qualify for the loan. Then they buy their next property with 5% down. They convert the last one to a rental and they live in the next one for a year or however long it takes them to save up their down payment and be able to qualify for a loan from debt to income. Um, And so they move in, they live there for a year or however long it takes, then they buy their next property and they convert the last one to a rental. They do that until they have 10 properties. okay. And if they do that, it takes them 27 years to be able to be financially independent. okay. If they do like a mix between the uh, nomad strategy and buying discounted properties that they can do some fix up and capture some equity with, it takes them a little less than 20 years to do it with that strategy. If they buy 10 properties and instead of them moving in, they have someone else move in on their behalf, like you know their kids who go to college, they buy properties for them each year, and they have them move each year, or they, they do it with their parents who want to live near them and be their grand, grandkids or something like that. But if they do what we call nomad by proxy, where we have someone else moving on their behalf, it takes them about a little less than 18 years to achieve financial independence doing that. If they do the nomad strategy where they're they're nomading each year, but they once they convert it to a rental, they convert it to a short-term rental, not doing just traditional long-term rentals. It takes them about 13 years or so in order to be able to be financially independent if they do that. If they do uh, nomad, but they also get a roommate, they house hack, um, that takes them about 22 years to do it with one roommate. Takes them about 20 years with two roommates, takes them about 18 years with three roommates, or it takes them about 17 years with four roommates. Okay. And then if they're doing, if they're short on down payment, they can use a strategy called Nomad with Lease Option in order to have a tenant buyer come in after they move out of the property and try to buy the property from them after they've leased it for a year or two or three. Um, And they're able to use the non refundable. Option fee in order to put the down payment to provide that from them. Um, that takes about 32 years or so for them to be financially independent using that strategy. Or if you have a real estate license and you're able to buy a property to move into for yourself and you get a rebate back because you have earned a commission when you buy your own properties, then um, you could do that. And that takes about 26 years for you to be financially independent if you happen to have a real estate license and you're doing that strategy. That's the ultimate real estate agent retirement plan. It's combining NOMAD with you having a real estate license. Okay, so if you want more information on that, go watch the Nomad class. But I'm going to use those numbers here at the end, so I wanted to run through what they were. And then the, here's the house hacking numbers. We really have uh one, two, three, four, five different groups uh, for house hacking. And basically, if, if, I, if I remember correctly, how did I do this? Um, I did. If they're doing Nomad with house hacking, uh, there's certain Nomad, there's certain numbers there. And then if we did And there's different roommates so we have uh house hacking with one roommate two roommates three roommates four roommates and that's buying one property and doing it it takes them 394 months 373 months 334 months or 304 months to do that depending on how many roommates they have the lowest one is the one where they have four roommates or if they buy one property and they house hack, but then they buy additional rental properties Know, 10, 15% down rentals or 10, 20% down rentals, it's shorter for them to do that, 357 months um, to be able to, to acquire properties that way. Um, or if they have um, different roommates and they're buying the rental properties there, really the fastest one is gonna be 273 months. And that is them, it's tied for them um, either having three roommates or four roommates and putting 25% down. So I'll just try to summarize those. If you really want to dig into that, go watch that class, and uh, you know, go in the show notes and look at the handouts. You can see a lot more details. But there's a whole bunch of different data up here for different numbers and different situations. This is why it could literally be a whole day to do like one of these because I can go into detail and really dig into what's happening and why. Okay, so let's do the second to last slide here, and this one shows a combination of all of the different. Time to achieve financial independence from all the different classes that we've done so far. So on the left hand side here, if you're looking at the handouts or you happen to be watching the video on the left hand side are all the buy and hold strategies. Those are kind of highlighted in this green area. Then there's another section of a variety of nomad strategies. Then there's a section highlighted in orange that show you all the nomad with house hacking strategies. And there's a couple extra uh, nomad type strategies. Uh, and then there's a red box, which is the Burr strategy, which I'm going to get to here in a second. And then all here on the right hand side are the rest of the house sacking varieties that we covered in the house sacking class. So jumping right into the number for Burr, if you do the Burr strategy and you do the one where you leave nothing in the deal, then it takes you 11.7 years. Uh, about 141 months to achieve your minimum target monthly income and retirement. So achieving financial independence that way. And, and, and by you, I mean Norman Norma with their very specific set of assumptions. If they leave 5% in the deal, they do a birth strategy, they do the buy, they do all the rehab, they rent it out, they do a refinance, and they leave 5% in the deal. It takes them about 15.6, I'm sorry, uh, 16.92 years, 203 months. Um, it's hidden behind the uh, the thing on the the slide deck, so it's hard for me to read. But it's two hundred and three months is how long it takes to do that. If they do and they leave ten percent in the deal, then it takes them twenty one point seven five years, or about two hundred and sixty one months, in order to be able to achieve financial independence. So you know, it's much easier if you could see this visually. So if you're watching the video, you know, pause the screen and kind of compare the strategy that you're considering to some other strategies that you're you're like. Uh, also considering or that you're like i'm curious about this one but if you look at it burr tends to be one of the better strategies you know by far i mean and when burr works burr is amazing so if you look at this burr kind of crushes a lot of these especially if you can do ones where you leave nothing in the deal the next closest one is probably doing nomad where you convert them to short-term rentals so the number one The best one to do is Burr with nothing in the deal. The next best one, though, is doing Nomad and then converting them to short-term rentals. And the other Nomads, they tend to do really, really well. Like all the Nomads with house hacking, uh, Nomad by proxy, Nomad fixer-upper, which is kind of like a a slight variation of Burr. It's not exactly Burr, but you're fixing up properties trying to get them at a discount. So if you look at those, though, Burr and Nomad are, are both really, really good. House hacking is probably the next best one depending on which one you do. And then, of course, traditional buy and hold is still amazing. It's a lot better than doing stocks, but it is not as good as a lot of the Nomad ones, a lot of the house hacking ones. And so of the ones we've covered so far, and we've got a bunch of other classes to cover, including you know fixer uppers and quick turning properties and, and other strategies like that, which we'll cover in future classes. But if you look at those, Bird does really, really well. So I would encourage you to take some time and look at the video or look at the handouts from the show notes and kind of compare these to yourself. Um, Also, just as a side note, we are going through and doing like each individual case and diving deep into that particular strategy. So for example, we'll dive deep into Norman Norma buying 10, 20% down payment rentals or Norman Norma buying 10, 25% down, rent, down payment rentals. And then we're going to do each one of those as its own separate podcast episode for the Real Estate Financial Planner podcast. So go check out those if you really want to do a deep dive into, uh, into the specifics of those where we look at more than just this minimum target monthly income in retirement. Okay. All right. So let's uh, finish up here. So in conclusion, when I do by modeling, the assumptions I use matter a lot, right? Like if we use a slightly different property, if we didn't use $375,000 as an example, if we use $200,000 properties, the numbers could be very different. If we use a different price to rent ratio, they could be very different. If they were saving at a different rate, it would be very different. If they had a different income, their debt to income ratios would be very different and it could impact their ability to qualify for loans and slow that down or speed it up. So the assumptions I use for modeling matter a lot. It's not okay. It's not encouraged. It's not desired for you to go and take the modeling I did and extrapolate that out and say, it is always best to do a nothing down bird deal or nomad with uh, short-term rentals, nomad no to short-term rentals. Like, There could be situations where those are not the fastest strategies. Okay. So if you change any of these assumptions, like the income or expenses or market conditions, like the appreciation rate or rent appreciation rate or price or interest rate or vacancy rate or maintenance or property management or taxes or insurance, it could change all these things. The stock market rate of return could change it. It could also change the, the kind of risk profile you have of doing these strategies. Your target monthly income and in retirement, you know, the, the fact that they needed $5,000, if they needed $6,000, it could impact things. Um, their safe withdrawal rate could impact things. You know, The cash flow characteristics of the property, whether it really is an amazing, in cash flow and property, or if it's more likely to be a BRRRR property that has, you know, second tier or third tier cash flow characteristics, but you're able to get it, where you're able to have nothing in the deal or 5% in the deal. And the number of properties you buy, maybe it's better to only buy five. Maybe it's better to only buy 11. Um, you know, maybe it's better to buy 15 and then sell off half of them, or maybe it's better to pay off properties early. All of these things matter and they matter in the assumptions. And I can't cover all of them in one class. That's really why we're doing a series of these classes over time. So the strategies that work best in your market or that market for norma norma may differ from yours and vice versa. So you can't just automatically assume that. You really need to go plug in your own numbers and do some, do some math for your own specific situation. And you can do that at the realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash model. Just pick your city and it's kind of like a starting point with a lot of the assumptions, but any of the assumptions we use are changeable. And so you can go ahead and change those to better match what you're trying to accomplish and what your numbers look more like, okay? So that's it. This has been James Orr with the Real Estate Financial Planner. Um, I hope you enjoyed class. Um, The next class, I believe, is on quick turning properties and fix and flips. uh, And we'll continue on with the series of different modeling. And hopefully we'll get through those and then we'll be able to move on to some more uh, meaty topics about how to implement some of these strategies rather than more of this kind of like big picture strategy sort of like um, kind of class. So hope you have a great night. Thanks so much. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, Mortgage interest rates up and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates. Cash flow on rental properties in Boise is harder than ever. Book a call with the Real Estate Financial Planner to apply our proprietary 88 strategies to improve cash flow on your rental. See the show notes for a link to schedule your call and improve your cash flow today. If you're a real estate agent,